The series is called uh, Death Defeated. We're making our way through the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible, the ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now. Just raise your hand and they'll pass one along to you. Let's get our Bibles open to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. We're really beginning to slow things down at this point in time but because really John, in writing his Gospel, slows things down as well. Really, from chapter 12 on, the Gospel of John just really deals with just a few weeks, just, just several days, where, where the first 11 chapters dealt with multiple years. And so we're just going moment by moment, scene by scene, through a John's Gospel, trying to discover a who Jesus is and what that means to, to us. So we're going to be looking at John chapter 18, beginning at verse 20. John 18, beginning at verse 28. It says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews, the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This would fulfill what the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your, your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Our passage this morning begins with Jesus being led from Caiaphas' house to Pilate's headquarters, to the governor's headquarters. Now, as we've been studying the Gospel of John for the last several months, well over a year now, we, we've noticed that John often takes a different angle from the other Gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptic Gospels. That's because they synthesize with one another. They fit together. They follow a very similar path in terms of chronology and in terms of, of emphasis. But John likes to tell stories that hadn't yet been told or to relay information that, that followers of Jesus Christ or people who were thinking about believing in him might not have heard. 
And so the story of Jesus' arrest in Gethsemane all the way to his crucifixion at Golgotha follows this path. He's he's originally brought to the house of Annas, the former high priest. Then from the house of Annas, he goes to Caiaphas' house, and Caiaphas interrogates Jesus. Then the whole Sanhedrin gathers at Caiaphas' house, and they have a trial. They find Jesus guilty of blasphemy. From there, they take him to Pilate's headquarters. Pilate doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. He tries to to have Herod deal with him. So he takes him over to, to Herod's palace. Herod doesn't know what to do, sends him back to Pilate. Now if you read Matthew and Mark and Luke together, you would see it follows this chronology. But again, in John, John wants to talk about what we looked at last week. He wants to zero in on this interview, this interrogation with Annas. None of the other gospel authors do that. And then John skips over all the stuff the other gospel authors talk about, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and Pilate and Herod and back and forth, and zeroes in on this final interview, this final trial involving Jesus before the governor of Judea known as Pontius Pilate. And in this interview that Pilate is going to engage in, he's going to move sort of between two worlds. He's going to go outside and talk to the Sanhedrin. And eventually that Sanhedrin, that's, that, that council group, is going to grow into a large unruly crowd. He's going to move from the outside to inside his headquarters where Jesus is standing. And he's going to speak to Jesus and he's going to go back out and speak to the crowd. And he's going to go back in and speak to Jesus. And it's in these moments where Jesus has Pilate one-on-one, where Jesus is going to reveal three things to Pilate that all of us need to know and understand. Three incredible, life-transforming truths about who Jesus Christ is. But let me set up a little bit more of the context here before we get into those three things. So verse 28 says they left Caiaphas' house to the governor's headquarters. Now, Pilate did not live in Jerusalem. He had a beach house. He lived on the coast. And he only visited uh, Jerusalem every once in a while. Really, he only came during festivals during holidays and because of what, the reason why that is is because all Jewish nationals would come into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate you know the feast of weeks or Pentecost or or the feast of Passover like like the feast that's happening right now and the reason why Pilate came is because he was in charge of the army and he was in charge of preserving the Pax Romana the Roman peace and so When all of these Jewish nationals were coming together in what used to be the capital of what used to be a country known as Israel and then known as Judah, now it's just a province, just a territory under Roman rule. But the fear was that nationalism was going to rise up and several times a number of attempted revolutions took place during festivals. Because that's when Jewish nationalism was running high. That's when all the people were coming together. And so Pilate has set up his headquarters in Jerusalem to make sure that there isn't a riot or a revolution. It says here that it was early morning. As we follow this chronology, when Jesus showed up at the house of Annas, remember it was already dark. The servants had already started a fire that Peter was warming himself by. And then the interview with Caiaphas and then the trial before the Sanhedrin. All of this happened in the middle of the night. They have been up all night, right? It's daylight savings time for us. All of us are, you know, an hour less sleep right now. 
But everyone involved in this story has been up all night. So they, they get to Pilate's headquarters as soon as the sun is just beginning to peek over the horizon right at dawn. But notice that the Sanhedrin did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Jesus went into the headquarters, but the, the Sanhedrin, they didn't go in. And the reason why they didn't go in, it says there, they didn't want to be defiled so that they could eat the Passover. Now, didn't the, Jesus and the disciples eat the Passover like the night before? Wasn't that the whole Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup and the foot washing? Wasn't that the Passover meal? Well, listen, the Passover lasted seven days. And so there is a, a Passover meal, but to eat the Passover is to participate in these, all of these feasts that take place throughout the course of that week. Now, why is it that the Jewish leaders think that they shouldn't go into Pilate's house? How would they get defiled by simply going into someone's house? What, what was going on in their minds? Well, as we know, the Pharisees and the chief priests, they were sort of known for not just taking the rules in the Bible, which are hard enough to follow in the first place, but then adding to those rules more rules and more rules and more rules and rules to keep the other rules and new rules to keep the old rules and, and then more rules and more rules and more rules. And so they had created this rule about not going into the house of someone that was not Jewish. It's not in the Bible. But they had created this rule. Here's why they created this rule. In the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 9, there's a group of people that want to celebrate Passover. But they come before Moses and they say, Moses, we have, we've touched a dead body. They don't, they don't explain the circumstance. Maybe it was a loved one. or Maybe they're trying to help someone on the street and they actually ended up dying. And they touched a dead body. And there's all this ceremonial cleanliness and uncleanliness in the Old Testament. And so they come to Moses and they say, we know it's Passover time, but we touched a dead body. You can read about this in Numbers chapter 9. Moses doesn't know what to do, so he prays to God. And, and God tells him, listen... We, we want them to still celebrate the Passover, but because they're ceremonially unclean, have them wait a month. Have them wait 30 days. And so that's what they did. God mercifully provided this way. They didn't, they didn't mean to touch this dead body. They weren't trying to disobey God's law, but they just had to wait a month. Now, fast forward to the time of the Sanhedrin. And all of the extra rules that they were trying to add, they didn't want to ever come in contact with a dead body. And so what they tried to do is try to avoid and insulate themselves. One of the reasons why chances are the priest or the Levite didn't help the, the, the man on the road to Samaria was because they might have been afraid that the guy was already dead because the robbers had left him for dead. The Samaritan didn't have the same law. They were so afraid of touching a dead body. So the rule to the rule to the rule is to make sure, well, I don't want to touch someone who touched a dead body. And I don't want to touch someone who touched someone who touched a dead body. I don't want to touch someone who touched someone who touched someone who touched a dead body. And anyone who's not Jewish, they don't even care about touching dead bodies. So what we're going to do is we're going to make sure that we don't touch anyone who's not Jewish. Just in case they touch someone that touched a dead body. And actually to be extra more careful to avoid touching them, we're, we're, going to, we're actually not going to go inside their house. 
Because if we touch something in their house, if we touch something that someone touched, that touched someone, that touched someone, that touched a dead body, or touched something that touched someone that touched a dead body. Rules on rules on rules on rules. Now, so here's, here's the crazy thing. They are about to have an innocent man killed for no reason and they're concerned about keeping some extra stupid rule that's not in the Bible. How about you shall not kill? How about you shall not commit murder? Is that not a pretty big deal? That's right there in the Ten Commandments. And yet, they, they are trying to stay pure. Even while they are aiming at doing something so evil. Now, before we pile on the Sanhedrin, let's just take a look at ourselves because we're all recovering Pharisees, aren't we? And there is something inside of all of us that wants to add extra rules. And isn't it so often true that when we're giving into sin in one area of our lives, we can be super militant and committed to some other peripheral issue? And that's exactly what the Sanhedrin are doing here. And it's so often what we can find ourselves guilty of as well. So the irony that they're about to commit murder, killing an innocent man, and yet not wanting to go inside a non-Jewish person's house so that they could eat the Passover, not realizing that the one inside the house is the Passover lamb. John 1.27, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, not just of the Jewish people, but the sins of the world. But they can't see it. They're so blinded by their pride and their religiosity. Verse 29, Pilate, being a consummate politician, accommodates them. So he says, so Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. No, that's not an answer. He said, he said, what's the accusation? And they said, well, no, accusation. Of course, of course he's done something wrong. Can you just hurry up and give him the death penalty already? See, the same, they knew they had nothing on Jesus. Jesus said multiple times, which, which one of you accuses me of sin? They picked up stones to throw at him. He says, I've done many good deeds. Which one are you going to kill me for? They had nothing on him. But they wanted him dead. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Pilate, we're going we're to notice, is going to totally try to evade the responsibility of dealing with Jesus. He says, listen, you're the Sanhedrin. You have, you have a, a, a measure of jurisdiction. So just go ahead and judge him by your own law. Pilate's trying to steer clear of getting involved. That's why he sent him to Herod. To try to not to deal, to try to avoid dealing with Jesus. But they respond in verse 31: it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. You see, they wanted Jesus to die. What they wanted was for Jesus to be crucified. So Roman law did not allow the Sanhedrin to um, execute someone formally. By crucifixion, they did allow, interestingly enough, there was, a, there was permission within Roman law for someone to be killed by stoning, by sort of a mob that ran out of control. And that's what they tried to do to Jesus a couple of times, but remember, they were unable to. 
It says here that, that this was to fulfill how Jesus was going to die. You see, the Sanhedrin wanted Jesus to die in a certain way. They wanted him to die by hanging on a cross. The reason why they wanted him to die by hanging on a cross is because of what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 21. It says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, a hanged man is cursed by God. So this, this teaching from Deuteronomy that if someone is hung by a tree, the context here is, is most likely being hung by a noose or by, by a rope, but that also applies to someone who's being crucified. And what the Sanhedrin wanted, they wanted to, to, to tell everyone that thought Jesus might be the Messiah to say, no, 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 look, look, he's hanging. It's not a tree, but it's a cross. It's the same thing. Because he's on the cross, that means he's cursed. Cursed as a man who's hanging on a tree. They wanted to prove that Jesus was not the Messiah by showing that he was cursed. And only the Roman government could put him in a place on display to show all of Jesus' potential followers that he was cursed. But Jesus knew that it was going to happen this way. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3 verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's just quoting a paraphrased version of Deuteronomy chapter 21. Jesus intentionally on coming to the cross took on the curse. He wore the crown of thorns, which is a symbol of the curse. When Adam and Eve sinned, thorns and thistles began to grow. Jesus became the curse in order to become the cure. And it says right here that this handing over of the Sanhedrin, handing Jesus over to the Romans, happened so that Jesus would die in a specific way. Verse 32, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus had said this numerous times in John chapter 3. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Again, in the book of Numbers, there's snakes that are biting the people because of their sin. And they're dying from the venom from the snakes. And God has Moses make a bronze serpent and put it up on a post. It's hanging there. And anyone who looked to the serpent was rescued from the poison in the venom. And Jesus says in the same way, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. He's going to be hanging there. John 8, 28, Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of God, then you will know that I am He. It's going to prove that He is God. It's going to prove that Jesus is who He says He is when He's lifted up. John 12, 32 and 33, Jesus said, When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then John adds, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Sometimes when we use the lifted up language, we're, we think about worship and praise. Lifting him up. But when Jesus used the phrase lifted up, he's talking about being lifted up on the cross. To become a curse for us. Jesus predicted and prophesied and promised and planned that it would happen this way. The Sanhedrin wanted it to happen for their reasons. But Jesus intended it for it to happen this way for the ultimate reason. 
to rescue us from the curse that is on every human being because of sin. Now begins the private conversation between Jesus and Pilate. So Pilate entered his headquarters, verse 33, again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Here's the first thing we can see about Jesus. Jot this down, that he is the king of heaven. He is the king of heaven. Pilate's um, concern right now is strictly political. He has been given the responsibility of being governor over this region called Judea. A place that is very volatile. A place that is at times quite hostile to Roman rule. A place with a rich history of revolution and rebellion. He also has a very tenuous relationship with Caesar Tiberius over in Rome. And he's already had a couple of strikes. And he knows that if he swings and misses at this instant, he's out. And so he wants to be clear. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Do you present a threat to Rome? Verse 34, Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate isn't really thinking about himself other than protecting himself. He's just trying to keep the crowd happy. He's also trying to figure out a way to keep the crowd happy and also keep Tiberius Caesar happy. But Jesus is asking him, what's your motivation here, Pilate? Well, what's the end game? What are you going for? Why are you even asking me if I'm the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea or did someone plant that idea in your head? Again, the other Gospels help us out here in Luke chapter 23, verse 2. The Sanhedrin, because they had nothing to accuse Jesus of. They made up this story that Jesus was saying that we, should, we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. Even though Jesus said the exact opposite. He said, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar. And they, they said that Jesus was trying to lead a revolution and claiming to be a king to overthrow the Romans. But that wasn't Jesus' intention. So he asked Pilate, what are you really about? See, Pilate was listening to the crowd. The, the, the crowd's opinion about what, what Jesus says. But Jesus has Pilate one-on-one. -on -one, and maybe you need to spend some time one-on-one. -on -one. You've heard all kinds of different people say all kinds of different things about Jesus. But what do you think about Jesus? Maybe you have all kinds of different reasons about why you don't believe in Christianity or why you don't follow Jesus, even though your neighbor who invited you or your family member that, that comes here and you're here just kind of to appease them, but you have all these reasons. Are those reasons really your reasons? Or are they just reasons that you've heard from other people? Listen, get one-on-one -on -one with Jesus. Take him at face value at his word. That's what Jesus challenges Pilate to do here. Verse 35, Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus could have said, well, what have I done? I've, uh, I've fed thousands of people. I've uh, healed the sick from, um, from, uh, from illness. I've, I've uh, performed what, miracles, water into wine. I walked on water. I, I've taught people. I've, I've spread a message of love and of hope. But now Jesus gives him a straight answer about his kingship. Verse 36, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. 
that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Jesus says, listen, I am a king, but I'm, Pilate, I'm not a king in the way that you want me to be a king. I'm not a king in a way that you think is a threat to you. I'm a king in a far deeper way. And actually, Pilate, I'm actually more of a threat to the power that you think you have than you'll ever know. Because I... Jesus says, I have a kingdom that's bigger than Judea. I have a kingdom that's bigger than Rome. I have a kingdom that's bigger than the world. In fact, my kingdom is not even from this world. You see, Jesus has this, has this moment right here. This is, like, this is like that moment where Neo follows the white rabbit and then is eventually offered the red pill or the blue pill. This is like that moment where Lucy is in the wardrobe and she peels open the fur coats and she discovers a snowy wood. This is that moment where Obi-Wan Kenobi is is helping fix R2-D2 and he's explaining to Luke about what the force is. It's a moment where Pilate is having the door opened to a whole other world. A whole other way of explaining existence and meaning and purpose. It was going to change everything. Imagine... If Luke told Obi-Wan, you know, you're some crazy hermit, I'm not listening to you. Imagine if Lucy just said, you know what, I'm just going to close up the coats and never go in that wardrobe again. Imagine if Neo took the pill and just woke up and forgot about it all. This is Pilate's moment. Jesus is opening the door to understand what this world is actually about. And from all that we can tell from the story, Pilate slams it shut. May, they not, may that not be true of us. Jesus said, if, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, in verse 36. Remember, he told Peter, put your sword away. But he also said in Matthew 27 that if he wanted, he could call on 12 legions of angels. So his servants are not just his 11 disciples. His servants are all the heavenly host. But his kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Pilate's like, now we're getting somewhere. You're claiming to be a king. But again, Jesus is saying, you, 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 don't, you don't get it, Pilate. You don't understand what I'm offering you in telling you who I am. So Jesus comes at it a a different way. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king, but you're using the word king, but our definition of king is so different. So he says this, he says, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Jot this down secondly, that Jesus is the witness to the truth. He's the king of heaven, his kingdom's not of this world, and he is the witness of the truth. As we've mentioned before, John takes a very different angle, a very different approach in telling the life story of Jesus. Matthew and Mark, they tell the story of the birth of Jesus. Shepherds and Magi and Mary and Joseph and angels. John skips over all of that. In fact, right here, did you see it? This is the only reference to Christmas in the whole Gospel of John. He says, for this purpose, I was born. You want to know the meaning of Christmas? Everyone tries to 
make up their own meaning of Christmas? Some sappy sentimental thing? No, Jesus says, here's the meaning of Christmas. This is the reason why I came in that manger. This is the reason why the shepherds came. This is the reason why the magi brought the gifts. Is because I came to bear witness about the truth. Notice what we can learn about Jesus' nature here in this simple statement. He says, for this purpose I was born. It means he's human. If you're here today and you're human, it's because you were born. Humans are born. And so Jesus came into the world because he was born. But notice that it says, for this purpose I was born. And then it says, and for this purpose I have come into the world. He's not from here. He has come from somewhere else. He has come into the world. Just like it says in John 1, in the beginning was the Word talking about Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was there before we were here, before the earth was here, before anything was created. And he came into the world. So he says, for this purpose I was born, he's human, and for this purpose I have come into the world, he's divine. He's not from here. He says that he came here to bear witness about the truth, and he says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Truth is not something that can be modified or changed person to person. Truth is what is real. And Jesus is opening this door to the other world. He's opening this door for Pilate to what meaning and purpose and life is all about. He's opening the door to truth. That which is truly real. That which corresponds to reality. That which is true at all times and in all places for all people in all circumstances. That which is unchanging and universal and exclusive. One of the only academic disciplines that still understands the concept of truth is mathematics. Not a strong suit for me, but I know Simple math. Two plus two equals what? Say it. Four. Four. We're not golfing. It's just two plus two equals four. It's true all the time. It's unchanging. The, the math professors of all the universities don't get together for an annual conference to decide, hey, two plus two, what do you think this year? Equals four? Good. All right. Take a vote. All right. No. It doesn't change over time. It doesn't matter if a whole bunch of mathematicians over on one side of the, one side of the world decide that they want to make it two plus two equals three. That's, it's not true. That doesn't correspond with reality. It's true for all people at all times, in all places. And Jesus says that he has come to bear witness to the truth. And truth is a gift. Jesus came to give the gift of truth. Listen, after living your whole life of being lied to, to hear the truth is a gift. Jesus and truth go hand in hand. John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, we have seen his glory. His glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said, if you abide in my word and you are truly my disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Lies have us 
imprisoned, but the truth that Jesus offers gives us freedom. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When Jesus bears witness about the truth, he bears witness about himself. And the truth is this, loved ones, that there is a God who made you and who loves you. And he loves you enough to send his son to save you. That's the truth about him. Here's the truth about you. Here's the truth about me. That we are all rebels who have shaken our fist at our loving creator. And have wished that he didn't exist. And have wished that we would take his place. And that we would decide right and wrong. And that we would decide what to do. And that we wouldn't follow his good, perfect plan and purpose. And because of that, because we have sinned against the holy and eternal God, we have looming over us an eternal judgment. That's the truth. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. And Jesus came... To give his life so that that door that he is opening, it says that he is the way and the truth. He came to give us the truth. He came to also open the door to show us the way. By believing in him, by believing that when he suffered and died, he took the curse that all of us deserve. That he bore the punishment that all of us deserve for our sin. Truth is a gift. Look how Pilate responds. Again, he slams the door shut. Verse 38, what is truth? It's kind of the wrong question. He should have said, who is truth? And Jesus would have said, I am. But he says, what is truth? And then he walks away. Next next thing we hear from Herod, he's back outside. Didn't even stay for an answer. Now, listen, Pilate's not a philosopher, And so it's not really fair for us to philosophize based off of this question, because this is the kind of question that philosophers ask. And when I was studying the humanities, the social sciences in university, this was a question that was being asked a whole lot. And guys like Michel Foucault and other French guys in turtlenecks, you know, started asking this question. Asking this question, what is truth? And the way that they define truth is that truth is is just a power play. Truth is just something that the people in power use to oppress the people that are below them. And so this whole deconstruction movement, this whole whole postmodern movement begins in the universities to, to try to dismantle this understanding of truth, to say that truth is not unchanging. To say the truth is not universal. And loved ones, we, we see it now. It's not just out there in academia. It's, it's, in, it's in our movies. It's in our music. It's in the way that we cover the news. It's in the way that we talk to one another. This assumption that there is no absolute truth. Now again, Pilate is not a philosopher. Pilate is a politician and a pragmatist. Pilate just wants to do what he wants. But listen, you get a bunch of 20-something university students out on their own, no responsibility, and they're hearing from their university professor that there's no absolute truth and you can just kind of do whatever you want. I mean, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to latch on to that idea. And they have. See, we live in a world that has rejected this idea of truth. 
We live in a world where people just walk away and say, what is true? Jesus, you can say whatever you want about yourself. Listen, there's too much at stake to just say Jesus can believe about himself whatever he believes about himself. We need to come to grips with the fact that he said he is a king from another world. And we need to come to grips with the fact that he said that he came to bear witness about the truth. And so we can't just sort of tap you know, this religious group on the head and say, you believe what you want to believe and tap this group on their head and say, you believe what you want to believe. It doesn't work that way. One of them has to be right. They can't all be right at the same time. Two plus two cannot equal three and six and four. There's only one right answer. It's insulting to treat someone who thinks two plus two is six and say, you believe what you want to believe. You do you. That's not showing respect to that person. You don't have to be obnoxious in in telling them that they're wrong, but you have to tell them that they're wrong. There is a difference between right and wrong. And we live in a world that that says, what's true on that part of the world is fine for them, or what's true for that group of people, that's fine for them, but we're going to live by a different truth. Or what's what was true back then at that time is not true now. How, how often have you been in a conversation with someone about morals or ethics in today's day and age and someone says almost as an argument stopper saying, well, hello, it's 2020. Since when does stating the date mean you win an argument? Try that with your wives this afternoon, husbands. You know, uh, she seems to be winning the argument. You're like, well, it's, it's March the 8th. Should probably backfire because today's actually International Women's Day. So just watch yourself. Stating the date doesn't win the argument. We can't just say that the times have changed. No, truth doesn't change. No matter how much, it doesn't matter how sincerely you believe two plus two equals three. It doesn't matter how devoted you are to that. It always equals four at all times and at all places. But we live in a world that has rejected truth, that has rejected absolute moral standards. And then it's really interesting what happens next. So Pilate then goes out went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Well, that's a truth-based statement, isn't it? He goes out and speaks what he thinks. He says, what is truth? And then he goes out and he speaks what he thinks is true. He says, I'm the governor. I'm going to decide. And I find no guilt in him. But listen, what happens to a person when they reject absolute truth? What happens to a culture when they reject absolute truth? You know what happens? Mob rule. Whoever shouts the loudest wins. Look what happens here. He says, I find no guilt in him, verse 39, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, the innocent one that I find no guilt in? Look how the crowd responds, verse 40. They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. When we reject truth, the result is mob rule. When we reject Christ, we're at the mercy of the crowd. Loved ones, we live in a culture that has rejected truth. And when you look at social media, 
You look at the comment section on any newspaper article, a lot of newspapers are just shutting down the comment sections now. Why? Because it's just a bunch of people yelling at each other. And whoever yells the loudest is normally the one who wins. Someone sends a, a, some sort of a tweet or a post and they're so outraged about this and then the whole crowd jumps in and the outrage and then something is done about it and then the crowd gets outraged about something else. When we reject truth, it just becomes mob rule. Who's the most offended? Who's the most upset? Who's shouting the loudest? And here we see an innocent man is going to die and a guilty man is going to go free because Pilate wasn't willing to wait for an answer to the question, what is truth? And as it seems like it's all falling apart at the very foundations, I mean, even the governor who's supposed to be in charge, he knows that Jesus is innocent, and yet he is going to do what the crowd, it seems like everything is falling apart. Who is in control? Loved ones, we can be reminded there is someone in control. Because all of this is happening for a purpose. Barabbas being released was not an accident. Because here's the last thing, the life, last, last life-transforming truth we can know about Jesus is that Jesus is the substitute for sinners. Jesus is the substitute for sinners. John doesn't give us a lot of details about Barabbas. Uh, the ESV translates the word he uses to describe him as robber. It could also be translated insurrectionist. So we rely on the other gospel writers to fill in the blanks a little bit about uh, Barabbas. So Matthew 27, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. This was not his first rodeo. This was not his first time being arrested. He was notorious. Uh, Mark 15, 7, and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder... In the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Luke 23, 19, a man had been thrown into prison for an, un, for, for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Barabbas had been found guilty of doing the very thing that Pilate was afraid Jesus might be doing. Starting a revolution. Rioting in the streets. Threatening the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And he is going to set free Barabbas, someone who is a threat to him and everything that he stands for and everything that he's trying to preserve and protect and let an innocent man go free. All because of the crowd. But loved ones, it's not just because of the crowd. Barabbas means bar, which means son. Abbas, Abba, father. One son of the father is exchanged for one son of the father. One son of the father, Satan or Adam, inherent sin, a rebel, a revolutionary, a murderer, someone who is guilty, someone who deserves death. That son of the father. And then the son of the father, the son of God, is standing in his place. The one who was born and the one who came into this world because he's God in the flesh. And just, just think about this, loved ones. <clears throat> Barabbas is condemned. He's in chains. He's a sinner. And he has a death penalty looming over his head. And Jesus stood in his place. 
And Barabbas went free. Barabbas was the first one to know what it was to have Jesus stand in his place. And what Barabbas knew in flesh and blood, I hope he came to know the deeper truth in the world beyond this world. I hope that the door was open to him and that he didn't slam it shut, but that he walked through it. But loved ones, what's true of Barabbas is true of us. We are condemned. We are rebels. We have sinned. And the death penalty looms over our head. And Jesus stood in our place. John R.W. Stott says that the concept of substitution may be said to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Adam and Eve and taking the fruit, the knowledge of the good and evil, were saying we want to do things on our own. We want to make our own choices. We want to set our own rules. God only gave them one rule and they needed to break it. They didn't just want to be lawbreakers though. They wanted to be lawmakers. They wanted to stand in the place of God. The serpent told Eve, you will become like God. The essence of sin is substitution. That's the bad news. But the good news is the essence of the gospel is substitution. Keep reading. It says, man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. Jesus is the substitute for sinners. And loved ones, all of this happened at Passover. All of this is happening while everyone is contemplating how the people of Israel were once enslaved and in bondage, but the lamb died to save the firstborn from that home, that as the blood is on the wood, the punishment, the penalty passed them by, and here on Passover, Jesus' blood is going to be spilled on the wood of the Roman cross as he's hanging there like a cursed man, bearing the curse that all of us deserve he's our substitute he stood in our place when I was thinking about this message I couldn't help but sing to myself this song that we often sing in church and we're going to sing this in just a moment let me read to you these lyrics the lamb of God in my place His blood poured out, my sin erased. It was my death he died. And I am raised to life. Hallelujah, the Lamb of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that although your Son is the King, the King of Heaven, the king of a kingdom that goes beyond this world, we thank you that although he deserves a crown covered in all the finest jewels, that he bore the crown of thorns, that he bore the crown of a curse. 
We thank you for this glorious truth that Jesus came as a substitute for sinners. Sinners like me, sinners like us. So Jesus, right now in this moment, whether, whether we're hearing this news for the first time or we've been hearing it again and again and again, Easter season after Easter season, Lord, I pray that we would see our Savior more clearly, that we would love the gospel more truly, that we would pursue holiness with greater zeal and passion than ever before as we contemplate what it means for Jesus to take our place, Lord. So God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.